Welcome to another edition of the Built for the Storm podcast. Hosted by three-time World Series champion Jeremy Affelt. Affelt brings it. Chopper on the infield. Affelt to the bag himself. Get ready to experience life's winding journey through the minds of proven leaders in the worlds of sports, business, and entertainment. And he strikes out. That's four straight for Affel. Can't do it any better than Jeremy Affel. As they draw up your own personal playbook to overcoming the odds and achieving real success. We just don't give up. We don't quit. You know how we pieced everything together, man. Seeing teams win like this, the way we win. What's the best way to weather a storm? Run into it head on, charging full steam ahead. This is unbelievable, you know, game seven. I mean, this will be a memory for a long time for me. I'm so happy I got to come to the park today. Here's the fearless leader of our pack, Jeremy Affelt. Welcome to Built for the Storm podcast in Bernie, Texas. We are actually recording this podcast from the Free Rome Brewing Company. Uh, it is a brewery that uh, I'm an owner of, and my podcast studio is in the brewery so i get to watch people drink beer uh and i get to talk about life and so it's kind of two of the best worlds for me uh watching people talk about life and have a beer in the brewery and i get to talk about life here in the podcast room today's guest is a very good friend of mine we will say 10 plus years i have known this man he is a very intriguing man he's in washington state and his name is kevin parker a little bit about kevin and the reason why I want to have him on is for a lot of different reasons. He is definitely a, a leader in business. He's done many different things to represent this country. He's an entrepreneur who owns the Dutch Brothers Coffee Company. Many of you have heard of it in the Northwest. He owns 11 of those locations in Spokane. And there's 200 and over 250 employees he looks after. Uh, it's the third largest franchise in the country. And Kevin and his wife, Carrie, pioneered Dutch Brothers in the state of Washington, and they've done very, very well. He kind of got me addicted to coffee as well. He's also a former member of the Washington legislature, a former advisor to the senior member of Congress, and a professor in leadership studies at Whitworth University. He's done many things. He's developed a lot of different uh, leadership courses. One of them was at Harvard University, where he was a facilitator of, in the adaptive leadership program there. He was also awarded a uh, fellowship of the Aspen Institute and continues to be involved in that area. Kevin uh, was a citizen of the year twice, once for Spokane, Washington, and the other one for Washington State. He's won many awards. We can go on and on and on about what he has done, but his ability to be a leader and his ability to coach other leaders is phenomenal. And I've enjoyed being his friend, and I've also enjoyed being under some of his advice. He's walked many storms with me as well over the years, uh, so I've been very thankful for that. He brings comedy on the golf course because he golfs in sandals, uh, which we are, we'll discuss a little <laughs> bit today. It's embarrassing, but we'll let it slide. Uh, but okay. one of the reasons why I have you on Kevin, welcome to the show. I want you on here because what I did not say in the intro is, and I want to jump right into it for many of you who are listeners. Some of you were not born yet. Some of you were just being born and others at our age remember it very, very well, but I want to go back to April 20th, 1999. And for some of you, maybe you understand that date, but I'm going to refresh you. That's when the uh, Columbine High School massacre took place. And the reason why I have Kevin on the show is because that was in his time there, 
he was, I believe you were, were you a young life leader there, right? I was, and I was 25 years old. So you're 25 years old. You're a young life leader. You're getting to know these high school. You're not that far removed from high school yourself, to be honest with you. You're, no. you're only five, six years away. Right. And right. what we've dealt with it in this country, and it's being more exposed over and over and over again the last few years. But this was, and if you look at history in the United States, I mean, shootings and riots and all have gone on in high schools for many years. It wasn't just 1999. But this one here was such a massive like jaw dropping situation because it was literally a massacre. I mean, he got away with it and you were 25 there knew some of those kids knew those family members. Give me your view right now of what it was like to deal with such a, and and we're talking about built for the storm, but this was a major storm, but this wasn't just a major storm in your life. This is a major storm in many families, a community and quite frankly, our nation. And it kind of set off some really bad copycat scenarios where people have started to do it. And it, it's kind of become sadly somewhat of a theme year to year on shootings in our, in our campuses. I just want to get your perspective on that. Yeah. Thanks, Jer. I, you know, I feel the same about you. I, I love that you're doing this because your podcast, just to give you a 10 second shout out here. I, I think you have a lot of wisdom and you've got a lot of insight. You're one of the smartest guys I know. One of my favorite friends in the world. I and I just that. think it's a great way to share. You have a deep heart. You have a soft heart and a really sharp mind. And I, I think this is phenomenal. You're doing this. But at 25, I was meeting a kid for lunch. The kid didn't show. I was by the principal's office area, the entry of the school when the kid didn't show. Uh, Tuesdays, I normally was relegated to the office doing admin work, fundraising, things like that for the organization. And then I decided, well, let me walk down to the cafeteria and say hi to a few kids. And so I walked down and at this point, it's probably 11.18, 11.19, shooting starts at 11.20. I just get down into the cafeteria and um, a kid named Tony Saunderby, who was right almost dead smack in the middle of the cafeteria, called me over and I went over to say hi to him. And then we started hearing gunshots shortly after that. The janitor and the teacher who later lost his life, Dave Sanders, was running around the periphery of the cafeteria once we started to hear gunshots saying, get down, get down. And so there were 500 kids, and I was one of three adults in the room. The other two were the teachers. I don't know if there were other teachers in the cafeteria. I don't remember that or not. I know Dave and the janitor were there and me. We were the only adults in there. I was the only volunteer inside Columbine the day of the shooting, which is why I've always been free to speak because I was never under any of the gag orders by the district or by lawyers or things of that nature because I was not an employee of the district. Mm. And, and so I remember being under the table thinking I was going to die the gunshots we heard they were getting closer we would have heard the shots that took rachel scott's precious life we would have heard shots that injured other students and then as a gunman it got closer and closer you could hear a pin drop and so imagine that dynamic because you're in a cafeteria 500 students and it's so quiet you could hear a pin drop we mm -hmm. all knew something was seriously awry and then one of the pipe bombs goes off and then when a student I knew particularly well, who I still know very well, Tim Madison, started kind of the enclave of students running up the stairs. And we all ran up and Dave Sanders helped get us all up the stairs and he stayed behind. And that's how he ended up taking shrapnel on the shoulder. Mm -hmm. um, just a moment where I didn't think I was going to get out. I remember telling God, hey, I'm going to live deliberately and intentionally. I'll do something with my life. I don't want to die today. And it was um, 
it was awful. And I remember the FBI had interviewed me either the next day or the day after on some of the details. And I remember one of the questions they asked was, how long do you think you were in the cafeteria after the shooting started? And I said, um, I think I said, what, 10 minutes or something, eight minutes. And I think it was a total of two minutes, two or wow. three minutes, but it felt so long. So it was, it was a really hard circumstance and it still impacts me today. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I can only imagine you said a pin drop. I mean, I, the fear that comes over you, does everything shut off? Like for me, a lot of, not, not everybody has the, you know, you, you hear about war, you hear soldiers tell these stories and the adrenaline and the focus and certain things like that. But the difference for me is as a soldier, as a military person, you're going into war, you hear gunshots. I mean, it is a scary situation. Everybody says it's, it's always kind of, you're kind of in a fight or flight mentality in that time, but you signed up for it. This one here, no one goes to school that day. No one goes to work that day. You don't go in to meet with a kid for lunch thinking there's going to be a couple guys coming in here and just rapid firing at whoever moves. And so the pin drops, the faces, was it, was it the fear? Was it just the confusion? What was it that kept it quiet? Because you're thinking it should be people screaming. But in reality, it wasn't. Everybody kind of almost held their breath. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. I don't know what it was on why everyone was so quiet. I think, one, we felt Dave Sanders and the janitor were taking control of the situation. We should follow them. And we should allow them to do their thing. That was probably part of it. And I think the other part, we were all very scared. I could only imagine that. I, I think that for me, seeing that though, now these were students, correct? Eric Harris and Dylan, I'm not, Kybold, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, but yeah. these were two students that were actually at the school or were they no longer there? Who were these guys? They were still, they were still at the school. So they're still at the school. Like, so now you're trying to process it. Okay, everything happened. You've kind of almost kind of felt yourself say, if I get out of this, I want to do something with my life. But the problem is you have PTSD issues. You have, I'm sure, nightmares. You know some of these kids and some of the adults that their lives were taken. So how do you move in a leadership role in that situation? Because you have angry parents. You have angry kids. You have sad parents, sad kids. You have a community that's just completely in shock. I think they were even saying like, how fast did the cops get there? Was it, was there a, like, how do you keep the blame game from happening, right? This is your fault or this is their fault or this is, how do you lead in this situation? Yeah, it was a situation where I felt woefully unprepared and your insight's really good, Jer. A lot of people don't draw that connection that this is not something any of us signed up for. Active shooter training did not exist. That language mm. did not really exist. And so, although School shootings have been, a, and school violence has been a part of our country since the 1700s and part of the world. Kids in other parts of the U world use machetes and knives and bombs, and in America they use guns. But this is not an American thing. This is a very much a worldwide thing. Mm -hmm. Columbine captured the country's attention because it was on national television. It was covered live. That's why I think Columbine caught the media's attention because most people can remember where they were when they first started watching this coverage. So for, for me, I remember thinking, I'm not any wiser because I've been shot at or I'm not or gone through the experience. I don't know information I didn't know the day before, but I had all these people asking me for advice. I remember I had 
you know, Colin Powell was one of the people who had reached out and there were other names like that. And I just remember feeling so inadequate because I thought, I don't, I don't know what to tell you. I mean, I was in there. I was lucky to get out. I don't have, you know, I'm not a Yoda around this stuff. It was a really hard circumstance, but we really focused on a ministry of presence and we wanted to be with students. And so at 4.30 that day, one of a kid named Eric Conant walked through our door and he was on the football team and we didn't invite any kids. We didn't not invite them. We just had not even occurred to us because I had just gotten home from being there myself. And then all of a sudden, more and more students started coming. And before we know it, there's 150 students in our condo, a little 900 square foot condo a mile down from the school. And that continued for the next 18 months. And so for us, it was a ministry of being available, listening to stories. I have time to tell a quick story. There's a student named Byron who was at our condo that night. And a lot of the kids at our condo that night, by the way, I did not know them prior to the shooting. I might have known of them but I wasn't always super close to every kid that came through our door. And Byron was a kid that had been in the library where most of the kids were shot. And another student said, um, hey, a student named John said, hey, Parker, you should go talk to Byron. He saw everything. And so I said, all right. So I go up to Byron. I'm like, dude, you know, I'm glad you're here. You need anything, blah, blah, blah. I said, hey, it's kind of hot in here. You want to step out on our little porch? And we had one of those condo type porches that are, you know, hold like four people and we're out there. And, and I said, hey, Byron, so where were you when the shooting happened? And he said, well, I was in the library. I said, oh, yeah, okay. I think I heard that. I said, tell me what that was like. And Byron explained being in the library in probably five or 10 minutes, kind of like he was recanting last night's Colorado Rockies baseball game. It was that no emotion. Here's what happened. Here's who scored. Here's where the errors were. Here's who pitched. And then, so Byron tells me the story. And I said, hey, Byron, will you tell me the story again? And so Byron tells me the story a second time. And this time, more information came out. Not a lot, a little bit. This time, it was probably 15 minutes, maybe 20. And Byron finishes the story for the second time. And I stare at him. And I said, um, Byron, tell me the story again. And Byron told me a story a third time. This time, it was probably a half hour-ish, maybe a little longer. Tears were lined up on his eyelids. They were ready to run. There was emotion starting to come in. There was some detail entering that did not come in the first or second version of the story. And then Byron finishes it. He's tired. He's now told the story three times. And I think he so wanted me to ask to tell me again. And I think he dreaded the question. And I looked at him and he knew it was coming. And I said, Byron, tell me the story one more time. Mm. And Byron tells me the story this time. There's tears everywhere and all this detail. And now he describes feelings and emotions that did not exist or were absent the first three versions of the story. And then Byron probably talked for an hour and 15 minutes that night, an hour and a half, just telling me what it was like being in the library. And Byron was one of those students, by the way, he was at our house most every day for the next 18 months. And and so for us, it was, we were not trained psychologists. The word resilience was tangentially in the American vocabulary, not like it is now. And, and yeah. um, what we did was we tried to be with people and with was an operative word for us. And we did that by making our condo available. And we were just with students on every night, except Wednesday night. Wednesday night was where Carrie, my wife and I, we decided no one over. That's our night to recoup. And every other night and our students were over at our condo. So when we're dealing with storms, a few things I heard in there, 
Uh, thank you for that story, Kevin. Um, so well, I've been doing a lot of research on storms. I've been through a few storms myself. Um, yes, but leading, how healthy is it? And even though it's hard, but for listeners listening to this, and they're like, some of them might be like, wow, I, I could only imagine. I, this is crazy. To some maybe even listening to the fact that, yeah, I was a part of those. I My school had a situation. I mean, there's there's been copycats now for a long time. Yeah, and and yeah. there's a lot of angry in some ways, I don't think it would be harsh to say, but mentally unstable kids that are doing this could be bullied, could be just bad home life, could be just mental illness, right? But how important is it? Like, because I see you asked him several times to repeat the story, to grab and to feel and to really relive it. Would you agree that in order to heal from a storm or heal from the trauma of a storm, being present with that pain is more important than masking it, covering it up, or trying to act like it didn't happen. Is that why you asked him to do that? Because I feel that it's more important to actually be present with the pain rather than put a mask on like everything's okay and to actually allow the pain to be healed rather than it to be yeah. just like scabbed up and covered up and just leave us, you know, there'll be always be scars, but you got to let it heal instead of getting infected. Yeah, really well said, Jared. And that's one thing I've admired about you. And, and I know that's why the Buffalo means so much to you because a buffalo runs into storms, not that's right from them, which if you run from them, you're in the storm longer. Jerry Sitzer in his book, Jerry Sitzer is a professor at Whitworth who wrote a book that captured the country about 20 years ago and was been printed in several different languages called The Grace Disguised. And he talks about losing his mom, wife, and daughter in one car accident, mm-hmm. um, one fateful night, true story. And one of the things about Jerry's book is he writes about you can't go over the storm. You can't go around the storm. You can't go under it. You have to go through it. It's the only way to get to the other side. And so I, I that's one of the things I, I admire so many things about you, but that's one of the things I most admire is you do that better than anyone I've ever met. But yes, important to go through the storm. Yeah, because I, I mean, for those kids, I mean, some of them maybe that didn't get the right kind of help, it shapes you. It really does. When you're dealing with storms and you go, everybody's going to go through storms in life. Everybody, nobody in this school, none of these kids, they didn't set the stage for that to happen. They didn't do that. So they didn't ask for that storm. So sometimes storms are going to hit you that you have no control over. And then some storms you actually bring upon yourself by the poor decisions or anything like that. But I just feel that those that try to walk through it, those that try to just process it, even as painful as it is, to pull those emotions out, the sad, how I've been hurt, it, it keeps it from festering because then I think what happens is if you allow it to fester or you try to hide it or push it down or suppress it, yes. you will be shaped. You will be formed in those years and you will react to things the way you do the rest of your life based on the fact that you didn't heal from some of the trauma that happened because of storms that they're going to happen. And I feel like you doing that with that young man I, have you spoke to him since? How's he doing? Have, do you have any idea what he's yeah, doing now? He's doing okay. You know, all the students are doing really, most of them are doing remarkably well. A lot of them have gone into professions around medicine. Some have become PAs, some have become EMTs. The kid who was hanging out of the library that was captured on live television where he just fell into the arms of paramedics and police, you know, he became a financial planner. He's doing really well. So it's different for right. every kid. Most of the kids are doing pretty well. And Byron is doing pretty well as well. Good. Good. Because that's, that to me, 
you know, being there, being present. Now, so how, so mentors in these situations, a lot of people, a lot of people will try to go at it alone. A lot of people take a storm and they alienate and they say, no, I don't want anybody knowing. I don't want to tell anybody my pain. I don't want to tell anybody, you know, when I'm going through a tough time. I did it for a period of time. I alienated for when I went through my storm. I, I in the last few years, I I alienated for probably a year until I finally just reached out and I needed people to to help me. And if I had to do it over again, I one one thing I learned from it is like you don't have to be necessarily completely vulnerable with everybody, but you have to have a circle of of, of men or or women around you yes. that you can become vulnerable and transparent enough with so they can help carry you during those times you don't have to hide from no matter how bad it is there's got to be someone that you can talk to and you saw that firsthand those kids showed up they trusted you and you like you said you, you guys probably weren't super equipped for it but it allowed you to probably one not necessarily i wouldn't say become fully equipped you, you, you're not going to be i would say you're not you wouldn't profess that you're a genius in this area but how did it mature you into a leader? What did it propel you to become a part of because of this situation that happened? I think it's a really good question. I don't think anyone's asked that question ever. Um, I think in some ways it taught me that I had something to give and I didn't understand why people were looking to me so much, but I learned that I do have something to give and I learned to do it gently and consistently. I learned the importance of taking care of myself. I was working out every morning in the aftermath of the shooting at 5.30. And that's when I started my early morning workouts, which still continue to this day. In fact, I did it this morning. You know, Jeremy, this body doesn't chisel itself. It yeah. Work. yeah, I've uh, seen those workouts. I mean, it's <laughs> great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and so I think for me, I went down to Barnes & Noble 48 hours after the shooting, feeling so ill-equipped for all of this. But I went to the management section leadership books were just now starting to hit the shelves in 1999 and the first one i saw was lincoln on leadership and i mm. bought it and i read it and um, it has a lot of anecdotal aspects to it but stuff that was very helpful which was stay close to your troops communicate clearly you know take care of yourself and those three things became kind of my tenants and and then today all that has emerged to for me a passion on resilience and i do a lot of talking and some consulting around the idea of resilience and just what the body goes through under stress because the body goes through a lot and so just talking about what's the neurology of that what does our brain do what does our body physically do and the importance of being aware of that and then how do we begin to alter and change that but I, but i think one of the things that i've learned early on is if i'm not taking care of myself i have very little to give and what i do give is probably junk food anyway. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that's good. That's good. I think that that's super important. I think one of the things that I've learned through different uh, scenarios like this is your physical health will also help you with your mental and emotional health. And yes. when you just give up all the way around and because you're emotionally or, or mentally not healthy, which a lot of times going through or coming out of storms you're not emotionally and mentally healthy at first. You really aren't. But the physical health allows the chemicals to keep going, which helps you then process things better. If you just sit around, like you said, and basically close off, you tend to start telling yourself stories. Like I do, I have therapy usually every week. I miss some weeks, but almost every week I see my therapist. And one of the things she always asks me is, what are the beliefs that you had about yourself during that time? 
what did you believe to be true about you during that time? And some of these kids, think about it, they go through that, and then you say, what is it that you believe to be true about yourself? And some of them probably could say, guilt, that I lived and they didn't. How did I make it through? You know, like, that is a terrible terrible thing and and it carries with kids parents the same thing looking at it saying thankful that their kid didn't get hurt in that situation but then looking at other parents that their kid did and saying man I don't I don't even know how to like go up to them because why was it their child not my child thankful it wasn't my child but why was it theirs and I couldn't only imagine you know, some of those things that they were telling themselves and to have kind of be able to process that appropriately. And to be honest, it is a form of healing. How about this one? This is going to be an interesting question for you. I don't mean to put you on the spot, but it's a question I'm sure you've answered, but it's a question everybody's probably thinking. How do you feel about gun control after that? Where are you at on that? Well, let me answer one of your questions, then I'll come back on that. I believe that the moment was important and I believe that could rise up to it. I also believe there was a lot of kids' mental health and physical health in their future literally felt like it was in our hands. So the moment mm. felt really big. And the moment, by the way, was 18 months long, but yeah, um, wow. and, and really wow. quite long. The other thing is, it's natural for America to gravitate towards gun control discussion. Yeah. But if we find gun control is not what's going to solve this. In fact, the alternatives to gun are arguably worse because the student terrorists become more apt to making bombs and all that. And, you know, there were, I forget what the exact numbers were. I want to say there was over, there were several hundred bombs stationed in Columbine. And back then the FBI was not releasing why those bombs didn't go off. There was a mechanical failure in it, an operational error that the gunmen had created. And had those bombs gone off, I wouldn't be here. They were all Yeah, you had two. You had two cafeteria bombs, 20 pound tanks, it said. And I was right by one of them, and the FBI asked me if I had seen it, and I had no recollection of seeing a big duffel bag out of the ordinary, Mm. but I was right by that bomb, and I just, I didn't know it was there. And if it would have gone off, I wouldn't be here. And and most of the students in the cafeteria would not be walking the streets of Colorado where they're living Mm. these days. So I understand the gravitational pull towards, let's look at gun control, but really this is a mental health issue, and I'd rather us focus on going upstream and asking, okay, instead of just looking at the tools that are being used to do this, let's look at what's the root cause. And those answers are upstream, not downstream. Yeah, I like that. I, I, I think that's a super important process for people, not just in America, but the world to take a look at is it's about health. It's about how we view life. It's about how do I process life and how do I value life? Because these kids here... The yes. way that you look at how they went about stuff of experimenting with napalm and backpack flamethrowers. And these kids were literally living a video game to a point where they looked at it as a video game because their approach on life was that these are not actually heartbeats. These are not flesh and blood. They're just a video game kill. There was not an empathy. There was not a compassion. There wasn't a value for the damage that they're going to do not only to those kids, but families in a community and even in their own families. Right. So I I, I think that you were right. I I think that the focus is it's mental health. It's 
what can we do to try to create a very, I guess, positive view of life in kind of what you're doing now, leadership. I mean, I've seen what you do at your Dutch Brothers. I mean, there is a reason why that you're very successful in the Spokane area. So uh, for the listeners, I have a nonprofit called Generation Alive, and my offices are actually in the Dutch Brothers warehouse. They've done a great job of providing that for us for, I think, what what are we at? Close to six, seven years now. We've been in there five years. Um, yeah, yeah, uh, about six, yeah, six-ish years, yeah. Yeah, and but in the back, when you walk through the offices and you go in the back door, you'll see a mock-up of what it looks like inside a Dutch Brothers coffee stand. And they're training the people on that. And then upstairs is, a, is, a, is some couches, ping-pong tables, meeting space where they're doing meetings and training and they're training these kids to provide a certain atmosphere to people. And you drive up into the drive through and they're spunky. There's good music. They're upbeat. They're like, how's your day? What are you doing today? You're not seeing a atmosphere of what you see a lot of in today in the customer service world where they can't look in the eye. They don't really want to talk to you. You ask them how they're doing and they give you a one word answer, good, or they mumble something and they just try to get you out of there and serve whatever you want. They're almost kind of just tell me what you want. I'll get it to you and be on your way. You guys create the atmosphere of you want people there. You want to encourage people that day. And that's a mental health aspect. These kids, when they go to work, I mean, you're going to deal with some of the HR stuff that every business deals with, obviously, but I'm, but I think. For the most part, you create an environment where these kids are like, I'm going to enjoy my day today because I'm going to make other people smile and I'm for the human life and I'm for a community because that's what you build. Do you not? Is that the atmosphere you try to build there? Yeah, we do. We believe that one of our philosophies is to treat our crew like kings and queens and then they'll treat our customers like princes and princesses. So we build in through a lot of leadership development. You know, we're rolling out a certificate that our employees can earn. It's about a year-long program. There's six classes that they can take. And so we really subscribe to the idea of the importance of growing the individual, and then that will also grow those around them. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Because I think that I see the impact that a good atmosphere brings a community. That's why we have the brewery. Because for me, you know, you come out, and one of the things that you're having a tough day, the whole concept is, hey, man, let's go talk about over a beer, right? So you go in and there's people smiling, laughing. Some people are sad. Some people are upset. You see when people are having good days and bad days. But it's a community coming and they're all trying to help each other out, whether participate in that wave because you're going to ride. The, I tell people all the time, ride the wave as long as you can. If you're having a good life, if you're doing well, if you're successful in your business and you have a great family life and you've got great friends, ride the wave because the reality of it is not to be a Debbie Downer, but it doesn't always stay that way and it can't and it shouldn't because you can't become a better human if you're always on the wave because you don't grow on that wave. And so for me, it's like, man, ride that wave, but also understand the fact that there's other people in this room here that are not on that wave and they want to be, but they're not. And how can we look at them or go up to them and try to provide an opportunity for them to maybe have a little bit of reprieve or talk to them about life and their situations and what they're going through. And that's kind of, for me, you're in the liquid business as well as coffee, man. Like think about it in the mornings. It's like, Hey, let's get up and have a cup of coffee and, and talk about it. Or, I mean, some people literally do not know how to start their day without coffee. I don't. So you provide that. It's almost like a, 
the day has begun type mentality for everybody. And when you have a smile on your face and, and you're creating that kind of joy, something for people to go throughout their day on because you never know what they're going through. I, I once had a chaplain in Kansas City when I was playing for the Royals. He told me, uh, his name was Mike Lasardi, and he said, Jeremy, behind every face, there's a drama unfolding. You just don't know it. But behind every face, there's stuff yeah. going on. I mean, we're talking about the secondary casualties from this school shooting. Annie Marie, her mother killed herself months after this happened because she just had so much pain over it. And teachers had PTSD over it. And Greg Barnes, they said, was a student. He ended up committing suicide in May of 2000. It was only years out because he could not. And then other kids were getting opiate addictions. And they're trying to kill the pain. They were literally trying to kill the pain because they did not know how to survive the storm. And I think that's the mental illness that comes upon you or is already upon you to cause a storm or the mental illness that comes upon you while you're going through the storm. And it's because people isolate and they don't want to relive the pain to get healed from the pain. They want to hide from the pain and hope that it goes away. And I think that you've done so much good. Did you think there's any influence in that? Parker, with you becoming a state representative of like, hey, man, I'd like to create a culture for the state in which I live in or help create a culture to provide the best life for the citizens of the states in which I live in. Was Columbine somewhat of something that caused that or was that always in you or or was there some drive because of that? That's a good question. I think Columbine is what really put that into full speed to wanting to go into politics to try and make a difference around a lot of things, you know, I, I ran on other issues besides school shootings, but school violence was an issue that I was interested in and tried to set up some mechanisms to help and continue to work with other schools. But I think that your point is a really good one in that pain motivates us and pain allows us to live a deeper life. And we don't get to lead a deeper life without experiencing a lot of pain. And that's one of the gifts of it. It's hard. It sucks. It's overwhelming, it's frustrating, but yet we always leave pain deeper than when pain found us. And, mm-hmm. and I think it motivates us to do other, other um, directions in life too. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I, I agree with you. I, I think that that's super, super important. I know just conversation, talking, you know, I, I enjoy it. I, and part of the reason why the whole podcast is here is because I love dialoguing it's not something that it's like, Oh, I enjoy hearing people go through storms. That's not what I do it for. I think I learn a lot from storms from other people's storms, from my own storms, but through concepts, through understanding of like, what did you gain out of this in talking about storms, regardless how long it's been, you're not reliving it. Sometimes, sometimes it's just therapeutic to kind of almost remind yourself of where you came from and where you are now and how thankful you are because of it. And sometimes talking through storms is healing in the moment. But for me, it's just, I gain a lot of understanding. In some ways, I actually will look back after these kind of conversations at the storm I came through and I'll be like, did I feel that in that storm? Or that's a great application. Is that something I can apply now or encourage people later? So a lot of times I'll ask this, what are one or two things like leadership concepts, principles that you would say was huge walking this storm out? What did you apply to the storm or what did you get coming out of the storm that you have said, these are definite leadership principles because you obviously you participate in a lot of leadership scenarios, 
even today at Whitworth University, you're a part of those. You've done some stuff at Gonzaga University as well, Harvard. What concepts did you get from this that you could say this could be applicable to leaders everywhere? I'll tell you, you've already said the most important one, which is don't go it alone. In the theory of adaptive leadership, one of the tenets of it is never face a battle, never go it alone, always have allies. And there's a difference between confidants and allies, right? Confidants are people that, like, like I'm a confident to you more than I'm an ally. Like, I'm on team FL, no matter what you're doing. I'm going to support you. I care about you. I love you. Whatever you're into, I'm going to support 100%. So a confidant supports the individual regardless of the organizational structure. An ally supports the individual as long as they're moving in the direction that benefits the organization, right? And so I think a lot of times in the world, we confuse our confidants and allies and we mix them and we're really wise to have them separated. And so here's how I did not go it alone. I had about five good friends around me and I gave them each a role in my life. And I said, one role is I want you to ask me all the deep questions and help me process. That was to someone named Terry McGonigal. Mm. Another to my buddy Chandler, who actually played nine years in the minor leagues in the Rockies organization. I was his high school catcher. Chandler's a guy where we love to talk sports and we love to laugh. And that's his preference of the conversation zone. And so Chandler, I said, hey, when you call, and this was kind of letting him off the hook too. When you call, I want, I want us to talk just as much, but don't ask me about Columbine. You can ask once in a great while, but I want our conversations to be as they always were. Another guy named Rod, I said, dude, we just need to talk and laugh. That's what I need. Another person, I said, help me think through how to lead this like city. What do I do and all that? So I gave people different roles. One person hmm. said, all I want to do is praying for me and checking in. So they all had different roles in my life. That allowed me to know when a number came in, I knew when I picked up a call, I knew what I was picking up. And so not going it alone, which you invoked earlier, super, super wise point. Yeah, but it also I like the the part of the labeling certain people for certain things. I remember when I was going through the divorce and you you said, hey, what do you need me to be for you? Do I need to be the wall you scream at? Do I need the one that you just you just have a bad day and you need to cuss it out? Do you need to be the one that needs to laugh? Who do you need me to be in this yeah. situation? I remember that that was such a yeah. big deal for me because the problem is, is if you have to repeat living the story and living it out is therapeutic and healing. But if you have to say it to eight different people in the same day, yes. it doesn't allow you to move yes. because you keep reliving the negative rather than saying, I'm going to relive this with you. I'm going to live this with you. I'm going to live this with you. And that was a big deal for me. If you knew I was calling you, you knew exactly what I was going to need at that moment in time. Yes. And I knew what I was free to do right there. And it, it gave me the freedom to know that, man, I need to just laugh right now. I'm going to call this person. And I know this person isn't going to be like, hey, tell me your pain. They're going to be like, they're going to make a joke or they're going to, yeah. hey, man, yeah. you know, it, it keep it lively. And that was super important to me. And it's something yes. that I don't even think that is really talked about much in the leadership world of having certain people that actually do something for your personality and they know that that's who they are and 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 there's an agreement there and you being that for somebody else i know when this guy's calling all right i'm about to hear a lot of stuff and i don't need to fix anything i just need to let him scream it out and i just need to tell him i love yes. him that's all i need to do yeah. That's really good. I really, I really enjoyed that. I was actually glad I caught that because I was really still on the fact that you were a catcher. It's actually really funny. 
Uh, but I mean, it's fine. I was just, when you said you're his catcher, I kind of giggled because I was like, wow, yeah, I heard you. you're a small target Parker. I, I really, you know, it'd be tough to throw a strike to guy like you, but you know, so like good. It. So good. I don't even have a comeback. Uh, it's so good. That was, good. that was so good. Uh, no, that's great. Hey man, Kevin, I appreciate it, man. I, I, uh, I love you, man. I love just talking concepts and leadership and appreciate your vulnerability in this conversation. And just a couple of things I got out of today was you got to process your pain to get healed from that pain. And then you also have to have people in your life that are allowing to feed you in different ways to allow you to heal and to move on, uh, in, in leadership, you got to have those people around you that all kind of do something different for you. And you might have to be a certain thing for them, but you always need to know as a good leader, a good leader will walk up and ask the same question to each of the people they're with is how can I be available or in what way can I be available for you in this time? And that's a yes. good leadership concept. So I really appreciate those things. Thank you for coming on uh, Built for the Storm podcast. It was awesome. Dude, love you tons, Jared. You have as much or more to give than almost any human being I know. I'm so glad you're doing this. People need your voice and your mind and your heart. This was fantastic. Oh, thank you, Kevin Parker. Awesome. You've been dialed into the Built for the Storm podcast with Jeremy Affel. And he strikes out. That's four straight for Affel. Can't do it any better than Jeremy Affel. If you like what you heard, please like, rate, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify today. Jeremy Affel here for Free Roam Brewing Company. Do you enjoy craft beer? I do. So I started Free Roam Brewing Company. Our logo, environment, and community all reflect the mighty buffalo, a creature built for the storm. It symbolizes inner strength, perseverance, and a love of freedom. Here at Free Roam Brewing Company, we are determined to strengthen our community through the love of craft beer. Our premium quality lagers and ales reflect the diverse experiences and tastes of our community. In a boundless world of potential beer styles, we cherish the freedom to roam. So if you're in the Bernie area, whether local or passing through, join us on Main Street and enjoy your freedom. Jeremy Affel here for the Hotel Via. I know you've heard it's at the intersection of sports, technology, and entertainment. But for me, it's my home away from home when I visit San Francisco. I can give you 50 great reasons why I chose Hotel Via, but it's easier for me to say it provides all the comforts of home, family owned and operated, and of course, it's across from the beautiful Oracle Park. So when you're coming to San Francisco for business, pleasure, vacation, or just coming to a sporting event, check in to the Hotel Via.